Welcome to the DevLaunch Podcast, where we bring you inspiring stories of the tech industry's rising stars, corporate America employees turned tech entrepreneurs. Hear how these folks took a risk in leaving their W-2 job to build their enterprise, the lessons they've learned along the way, and what they're doing to revolutionize this industry, one project at a time. So today, my guest, George Brooks, co-founded Crema with Dan Linhart. Crema is a Kansas-based, design-led technology consultancy that helps companies build the custom software they need to compete in today's market. Their product team blends business strategy and technical expertise to create solutions for their clients' most pressing needs. George, welcome to the show. Thanks for letting me be here. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm super excited. Uh, I've got so many questions for you. Um, but yeah, I'm just super excited that we have the chance to chat. Um, you know, the purpose of our show is really to draw light to and, and bring attention to some inspiring stories of today's tech entrepreneurs. And you are absolutely one of them. So we want to get as much out of you as you're, you're willing to give. Um, but, you know, just to kind of start off with some, you know, a little bit of like background and some some facts about you. Um, am I reading this right, that you started Crema back in 2007? Yeah, definitely. I um, mean, gosh, that seems like a lifetime ago now. Um, yeah, back in 2007, uh, long story very short. I'll try to make it as short as possible. Um, I was working for a tiny little mission-driven organization, um, uh, that, excuse me, a, a design agency that served mission-driven organizations. It was like three people and loved, loved, loved working there. It was my first design job. And then my wife and I got pregnant with our first kiddo and she found, or the, I guess the doctors found uh, what ended up being cysts in our daughter's chest in utero. So in, while she, she was still in the womb and they started doing procedures actually in the womb. Crazy, crazy, wow. crazy. So uh, they took her out um, when she was uh, premature so they could get her out and make sure that she could survive. So she was about two months early. And she was in the NICU and then the PICU for the first seven months of her life. Wow. Well, this is way before hybrid and remote work was really kind of like popularized. And so what um, what I did is I said to my employer, hey, this isn't fair. I'm living out of the hospital, right? I, I'm not actually ever at the office. I'm not actually getting work done. Why don't I buy a laptop and I'll become a, a contractor, a freelancer, and you could send me design work. Um, and he said, that sounds great. So I did that, and then I turned around. I was like, cool, give me my first project. And he goes, ah, it's 2007, 2008, if anybody remembers the economy at that time. Oh, yeah. He's like, actually, man, I really couldn't. I, we didn't have enough work to even keep you on staff, let alone. Um, so, But he was so generous to say, but one of my good friends is an entrepreneur. He's launching this platform. He needs a designer and a project manager. I'm going to introduce you. Now, I already kind of knew the guy, but the guy just like, took care of my family for a full year, mm. worked on building this platform out, designing this platform out. And um, I learned very quickly what it meant to be uh, an entrepreneur. Some people are you know, inspired to go do something, they know to go build a rocket ship and go to the moon. Other people are shoved off a cliff and have to figure, <laughs> figure out how to uh, buy, build a plane or a parachute. And I was definitely the latter. Wow, so you were just kind of thrust into entrepreneurship. 
Yeah. I mean, I was always wanted to own my own studio. I, I think I remember telling even my mom when I was in middle school, I was like, man, all I want to do is just own a place where I'm surrounded by creative people building like the coolest stuff. Mm. And inevitably I thought maybe that'll be working for agencies. Maybe that'll be working for a tech company one day, something. Um, and then fast forward, gosh, 15 years and um, got my own nuts. place. Well, I was going to say what part of part of the question that I was going to ask is I'm like, I mean, if I'm reading this right, your your business is almost able to drive. I mean, it's able to drive right now. Like yeah, it's that old. That's a good way to say. Well, and I can <laughs> I can parallel it to my my oldest daughter, right? Ah, so true. she was when I, when I started to go out on my own. She's actually just turned sixteen. Hmm. So while the business is fifteen years um, old, because it was about a, about a year and a half when I formalized the, that I accidentally had a business, hmm. um, uh, I can always look back and go, "Oh, how old's my daughter?" And yep, she's learning to drive right now. So that is very <laughs> much uh, very much the truth. So if you didn't see the scars, you wouldn't know the difference. She's doing super super well. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. That, that all resolved well and thank thank goodness for incredible medical technology like oh, in utero amen. surgery oh, that's why right time right place right doctors uh she's mm. a miracle yeah yeah oh i love that i love that so now i see dan who's your co-founder he joined the mix back in 2009 is that right yeah so this is when i realized um i have no business running a business um I was a designer by trade. I was a college dropout. Mm. Um, my wife was always much smarter than I was. I had intentions to go back to an art school or something someday. Mm. Um, and But yeah, I had got clients, right? So when clients start paying you, then you have to invoice them. Mm. You have to pay taxes. Mm -hmm. You have to do all these things that I had no idea how to do. Um, and so I went to my, my best friend at the time, Dan, and um, was like, hey, you're working on your MBA. You're getting all this like business knowledge shoved into your brain. Um, he was working for a large insurance firm at the time. And I said, he, he kind of went, I, don't know, I mean, I've got this promotional opportunity. And I said, what if you just put that on the table and went and asked your wife if it's okay if you work with me? Because the reality <laughs> is I needed her approval uh, to, to, you know, to team up because it was a big risk for their family mm -hmm. to go and you know, work with this entrepreneur that was maybe doing something. Um, but we had got, I won a big contract for a, a large health system website. Um, so several hundred thousand dollar gig. And I was like, oh, this is real. We got to do this. Mm. And so, um, I went to Dan and, and a few months later we, we signed some paperwork that said, all right, we're in it. Let's, let's make this happen. And we wanted to do it as a partnership and not just like me bringing him on as an employee because mm. the trust was there and I needed somebody to, to grow this with. Mm. Um, I'd love to write a book about partnerships because uh, I think we have a really, really good one. Oh, so. I love hearing that because there's so many stories. I would say the vast majority of the stories are that the partnership didn't work out or that right. we were friends before, but now we no longer speak to each other because we parted ways and it was not very amicable. So, yep. We even did a, something as corny as we wrote. Obviously, you have the legal documents that say you own this part of the company and I own that part of the company, et cetera. But we we created a a document. We were young. Okay, so let's go back. Well, I was early 20s, very yeah, early 20s. Sure. Um, and we created a document that basically said, um, what is this going to look like between us? And so we referred to it as like an oath. I haven't pulled out the oath in probably 12 years. I mean, we didn't need to. Yeah. And so we created this document that was basically like, what is important to us? One is our friendship. One is our marriage. One is our faith. One is our, um, our community. And we said the business, it's lower on the, on the list. Mm -hmm. It's important, but it's lower on the list. And if any of these other things are compromised, we'll dissolve the company immediately. Mm -hmm. 
So, and we wow. haven't had to, thank God. So, yeah, <laughs> so that's, here we are. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. And, and it, you know, I think that the cool thing as I'm hearing your story, it's, it's like, it started off, you were kind of just thrust into entrepreneurship. And so from 2007 to 2009 or so, it was a lot of freelancing work. Had you yep. hired anybody at that point or were you just doing it solo? Well, that's actually when Dan and I came together, I was getting ready to hire my first other designer Got it. Um, who's still with us, actually. Mm. Um, um, and so, yeah, I, I didn't know how to do that. I, I was still paying him out of my personal checking account. Um, you know, oh, wow. I just didn't I didn't know that I needed a business. I mean, like mm. literally didn't know anything. Mm. Um, and so um, he helped me shape the best practices on how to get that set up. And then, of mm. course, moving into getting benefits and everything else to make us legitimately a yeah. company. So. Right. Oh, that's so great. And it's it's giving you that structure and that support so you can be, you know, the visionary. It sounds like that you are for for Crema. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we definitely lean on each other for what I'm great at, that visionary piece, that creative piece, mm -hmm. that client services piece, Dan from an operations finance and um, really um, growth strategy piece, which is really fun. That's great. That's great. So when you started off, I mean, did you set out to create what you've created so far, which, which is like 30 plus employees? Like, did you have that clear vision from day one? No, I mean, honestly, we thought we thought we would be 10 people forever. Right. Um, if we ever got there um, and we the way that we really look back over it now is we basically doubled in size every two years, which sounds like exponential growth. Right. It sounds like this, like really fast growth. But when you think about it, every two years is actually pretty slow. It gives you that chance to go. What is it like to be four people now? OK, well, let's spend two years as being four. What's it like to be only eight people now? Let's spend, you know, the next the first two, four years. And really it was ignorance was bliss in some ways because we were just figuring out how to do it as we went forward um the we had some kind of principles that we wanted to live by which is what 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 would it look like to build the company that we wanted to work for um what would it look like if um we got to do really creative work from the midwest because that we weren't seeing a lot of creative work coming out of the midwest and so, yeah, I think some of those basic principles of how we thought we could build a place that was both fun, was challenging, was interesting, um, that's really what we set up. If you want to call it our strategy, that was our strategy. But we didn't have a growth plan. We didn't have a let's become X by X. Um, we didn't have an exit strategy, right? Um, some of those things have come into shape over time and we've made goals as we've gotten more mature to say you know it would be cool if we got to this size in revenue or in people count or in you know profit um, but um, those are kind of metrics just to kind of pull us forward when in reality it's still about oh no you know what really matters is how well we're serving our clients and what are the great products that we're putting out in the world and so those are the things that we try to measure our success more mm -hmm. by now yeah. And I think that's helpful to hear because I think sometimes when we're first starting off as entrepreneurs, we can get really bogged down with this idea in our mind of like what quote unquote strategy needs to be. And mm. I think what your experience and what your story really highlights is the fact that sometimes just merely the principles or the the bigger picture, like just the the vision of, of the future you're trying to create, right? Like a place that you want to work for, something that's going to be that's going to be adding value to the world. Yeah. Sometimes that is what's needed. I mean, I would argue that's what's needed all the time when you're first starting out. It is. It's gonna. It's gonna be different though, depending on which kind of company you start. So one of the things that I think about, and because we've we've actually been entertaining some stuff in the last couple of years, if you're building a product and you need capital upfront to build that product, and you don't have the capital personally set up, set aside to to get the runway going on that, so basically you need to do some fundraising, right? 
whether it's a seed round or VC or you know your mom or whatever, you need to be able to tell a story which sometimes could be viewed as a strategy, at least tell a story about the potential of what the business can become for the return for that investor. Now, that's something we didn't have to do, right? Because what we were doing is we were, the story we were doing, were telling was, hey, client, I will do the thing for you that you don't know how or don't want to do. And if you pay me, this will be a great relationship. So it was a much easier way to say, I can, I can have money revenue in very quickly for a service rendered without having to have a long-term strategy because I don't have to have to, to bank on a runway someplace. So I do, I do when, cause we were working a lot with startups in the early days. And so I could see the differences. They were starting their companies, the strategies that they almost, I had to have a little bit more in place because they had to be able to, to cast that vision uh, forward of the potential for the investor. I can see that. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it's a slightly different cause we're on uh, me being in the service space. Um, the service rendered was a much faster way. Side note, you want to go make money tomorrow, go find a service. That's right. Right. Mm -hmm. If you want to go um, make maybe a higher potential return on investment um, or a bigger exit, go build a product That's or right. build something with intellectual property. Uh, but there's higher risk there. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for us, it's just different. But I would say there's no reason anybody can't start a business by just going out and rendering a service, doing good work. I mean, your case in point right? Like yeah. you did that, you were thrust yeah. into it and you, yeah. you're still flying, you know? I love it. I love it. 15 years later, I, I still love getting up and getting do, to do what I do. That's amazing. I love it. I love it. So if you can remember back to those early days, um, I'd love to go back to, let's call it 2009 to 2011. Well, no, yeah. we'll say, let, let's say um, not only the, the early, early days freelancing, but also, you know, the first couple of years with you and Dan together. Yeah. Talk to us about like, how did you get work? Like what did sales and marketing look like for you in those early days? Um, I mean, it's in some, in some ways it is similar to what it is now, just at a different scale. It's relationships. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we spent a lot of time being a part of the community, um, hosting events, um, going to events. This is the time when web 2.0 was just taking off. Mm -hmm. So there was this new move of people moving to like web-based applications, mm -hmm. which because for, for those that maybe are younger or don't remember, previous to that, really the only software that existed was in um, servers inside the business. They were literally like, a, it was a, a tower or a computer or a stack in, in somebody's closet. And there was this big move to um, cloud-based computing, which allowed us to then see a, a push towards open source technologies. Mm -hmm. Um, we happened to grab onto Ruby on Rails early on, uh, which was this like, I think Groupon was using it, 37 Signals invented, invented it, and um, it was accessible. We could afford it. We didn't have to buy licensed software to, to start a business. Well, during this time, we were we were trying to figure out how to to kind of shape this, you know, this this new way of working. Um as, as kind of, as we were figuring it out ourselves, right? I mean, it's kind of like, oh, we're building new things, a new technology, as we're learning how to do a new business. And I think that the, the, the challenge for us in those first years was figuring out, will someone trust us to, to do all this newness? Hmm. What we found was because this is 2007 to 2009, well, we'll call it that kind of recession, post-recession era, mm -hmm. there was actually a lot of people that had just left big corporate jobs. Mm. 
And so there was a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in Kansas City and kind of uh, within our network um, that were, they had made pretty good livings working for these enterprises that then had just done big reductions, had great severance packages and they had capital. They were like, well, I'm not done with my career. Maybe I'll go start something because that seems like the hot thing to do right now. Hmm. But most of them were engineers. So oh. they could go maybe, they could go build things but what they couldn't do was make that a beautiful, usable product. And so um, that's what we, that's kind of where we came in as saying, hey, I want to be in Kansas City, region, area, network. I want to be the UX guy for the products you're building. Um, and ine inevitably, we started building, br bringing on engineers to help us execute on some of that because they couldn't do all the work as well. But uh, we found a sweet spot working with early, early um, um, entrepreneurs. Um, I think then then that was just a matter of like, hey, who do you know? And then you go to the next event and you're talking about and they introduce you to somebody else. And the next thing you know, you've got a you've got a contract. Um, and then I think referrals was a big piece in um, also doing some subcontracting work. So uh, strange fact, Kansas City, I don't know if this is still true, but back then was per capita the the largest advertising agency um, in city or maybe second largest in the in the nation next wow. to Minneapolis which is really strange. yeah per capita all right we're talking about size for the size of the city there's a ton of ad agencies sure, here sure of course la and new york are bigger as far as the big agencies yeah yeah. there's an agency here in kansas city that's got seven thousand people it's big wow yeah um so what we found is that if we built relationship with them they're working with these big brands that want to move to digital that want to move mm. into these spaces and I can be that digital partner for them. So that's where we would get fed work from some mm. partnerships um, as a subcontractor or sometimes just referred the work. Mm. So I, I would say referrals, um, uh, partnerships and subcontracting um, and then just just getting getting yourself out of the building, honestly, mm. yeah. spending time in the, in the community. And, and I'm glad that you said that because I think it helps to dispel a little bit of the mystery of the beginning part, right? Like, I mean, you, you, you knew because you were an expert in your craft, like I can do the thing. One right. of the things that's like such a roadblock for so many entrepreneurs is like, but how do I sell the thing? Like, how do I yeah. get people to buy the thing? And what I heard you say is like, a lot of it is relationships, especially in the service type of business. You know, like you said before, maybe it's different for a product-based business, but for a service-based sure. business, that's like built a lot on trust and the contract sizes are pretty large. Yeah. Having a relationship is huge. Yeah, we talk about the fact that we're in the business of having, um, well, I would, I'm thinking about changing this. We're in the, kind of in the process of the changes. But for the last 15 years, it's been uh, low volume, high value, mm -hmm. right? And so um, ultimately, we were always looking for bigger projects, longer projects mm -hmm. with maybe less clients. Mm -hmm. um, now, the risk there is one client goes away and it impacts your business That's a right. lot. That's right. um, and we've gone through seasons like that. Um, but generally speaking, I think that, yeah, you're right. It's it's not a mystery. It is just relationships. Mm. Um, my mantra around the office is we're in the business of people. We just happen to design and build apps. Mm. I love that. I love that perspective. That's, I think, the, a healthy way of approaching it. So you've already mentioned a little bit about how, um, you know, nowadays, it's, it's a lot of the similar stuff as what you were doing in the early days, just at a larger scale. But can you talk to us a little bit about how your marketing strategy has evolved as you've grown? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the biggest pieces is that recognizing that, that people don't know who you are until you tell them, right? Mm -hmm. And and 
early days, that can be a relationship, a, a conversation, a networking. And that still happens. That's still a lot of the work that we get is that I'll be at a thing and somebody will mention my name and I'll go over and say, hey, what's up? You know, we'll start chatting. We like each other first and it leads into an opportunity. That still happens. Um, at scale, well, when you're trying to get higher volume leads or at least more qualified volume leads, um, we found that content was our was kind of our king or our royalty. What we exper experiment we ran was kind of the early days of the YouTube kind of era taking off where vloggers were kind of um, doing a lot of the day in the life of a person. We thought, well, that'd be fun actually if you did a day in the life of the company. And so we started to, to film ourselves. We just started to film what was happening around the office. And we had a really cool creative space down the arts district here in Kansas City. And we started to just tell the story of what's going on. What are we working on? What can, what can we show? What principles are we learning? What tools are we using? What um, what methodology methodologies are we adopting, et cetera. And um, creating those videos and just publishing them once a week started to get traction. Now we have a YouTube channel that has about, well, gosh, we're just about 20,000 subscribers. And for a little design agency, 20,000 subscribers That's on a YouTube huge. channel is, I mean, it's not Casey Neistat, right? But it's definitely, it, it is great for us because one, it's two things, incredible recruiting tool. So almost every single person that comes to work at Crema has said, oh, I spent days binging the 200 plus videos you had on your YouTube channel. And I want to be a part of that. Wow. Right? Second is when a client comes around and they say, hey, we were introduced to you or we heard about you or procurement found you or whatever. We then went and checked you out and we found your YouTube channel. We found all this, this content. Now we have YouTube. We have a podcast. Of course, we have your social channels to promote those things. And then you have your blog posts. You have your, your things like this. So repurposing content into lots of different ways to tell a story about your thought expertise, your craft expertise is a really powerful way to let the world know you exist, that you are relevant and important in your space. That's been help uh, mostly in the qualification space. Mm -hmm. So I mean that in... It is much harder to get net new leads as a service provider, especially mm. in custom software development. Mm. But when you're qualifying yourselves against a potential competitor, um, you stand out pretty quickly when you have that content. So that's been that's what's evolved for us. Well, so. I was going to say, I'd, I'd imagine like I don't see a lot of other software dev shops doing what you guys are doing, especially in the content space. And quite frankly, like that's how I, I came to know you. Like I reached right. out to you. I think that was one of the things the first thing I said on my LinkedIn request is like, dude, I love your stuff on YouTube. I'd love to get to know you a little bit more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty rare um, now. I would love to say that it it's a one-to-one -one that converts from, you know, make more content, get more leads. Mm. We haven't actually proven that that is true. Okay. What we have proven is again, that it's a great qualifier. Mm. Um, so for, for, for me, I think again, any way that you can build relationships faster, uh, that's really successful. So I'll, I'll use an example. Something we started doing mid, well, mid COVID honestly was, um, uh, well, after COVID because it became safe to do it. It was like the coming up out of it, people wanted to meet again. Hmm. We had didn't we had done meetups back in the day for practitioners quite a bit. So the design meetups, tech meetups or development meetups, product management meetups, etc. And even um, I helped start one of the largest like um, startup community things based here in Kansas City and that hmm. kind of went across the country. The we kind of came back and we said, you know, we got a lot of clients on the coasts. This is where we're getting our clients um, because through networks. So, you know, San Francisco or uh, LA or Austin, which is on the coast, but still outside of Kansas City. Mm -hmm. 
And we went, man, we should know that we should know more companies in Kansas City. It's been a while since we did work in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. Kind of ebbed and flowed, but it's just been a, a drought of no Kansas City clients. Mm -hmm. I said, there's got to be cool people doing stuff um, and that are going through some challenging things right now. Mm -hmm. And I said, I would love to be able to talk to the leadership of these companies, um, specifically the leadership that's focused on innovation, design, technology, something like that. So there's lots of groups for CEOs. There's lots of groups for even CIOs um, or CMOs. And so this new title of chief product officer has kind of been taking off. And I said, what if we found all the chief product officers in Kansas City? We brought them together. We served some cocktails and had a like cozy little meetup. And we did a kind of workshop where we said, hey, let's unpack some of your biggest challenges. So we started doing this at the beginning of 2022. Mm -hmm. and, and we still, we have one coming up this Thursday. We, we do them every about eight to 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. um, we pay for it. But there's two rules. It's kind of house rules. No selling in the room between each other and we can't sell to you mm. and there's no recruiting in the room so you can't poach each other while you're in the room mm. but it's only leadership and it's invite only and the room can't have more than 20 25 people oh wow so small intimate and we've basically averaged between 18 to 20 people each time and we built some really really good long-term relationships of which some of those have turned into work and um and now you become the trusted person at the front of the room mm. Right. Even though I'm not selling, mm -hmm. all I'm doing is saying, hey, I'm facilitating. Hey, mm -hmm. I'm providing value. And then they always leave with a different book. I'm trying to remember what the book, uh, something about bets, mm -hmm. thinking in bets mm -hmm. is the book that we'll hand out today. We've handed out all to Marty Kagan's books. We've handed out, you know, and so they always get a book. So they know they're going to leave with value, even if the conversation was crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. like they're, they're always going to leave with value mm -hmm. and they keep coming back. Um, I just had uh, three emails from folks that I'd love to work with hmm. um, that said, hey, can't wait to see you on Thursday. Cool. Wow. Well, maybe that's this is this is about planting seeds, right? Mm -hmm. The seeds might take three weeks to bear fruit. They might take three years to that's bear right. fruit. But if you keep planting the seeds, inevitably you're going to have a, um, a funnel of work that comes in hmm. in the future. Yeah, it's investing and in, in relationships at scale that I'm hearing is is a very successful marketing strategy for you guys. It is because again, we're in the services space, we're in the people space. Mm -hmm. um, if you're trying to scale a product, it's a different approach, but this has definitely worked for us. Yeah, so. I love that. That is super insightful. Um, now let's let's go ahead and fast forward here for a minute. Um, yeah. You've spent a few years, let's say you've spent a few years with Dan, we'll call it 2012. Um, at that point, 2012, had you already surpassed that coveted seven figure, $1 million in annual revenue mark? Or were you still a ways out? You know, you prompted me with this question earlier, yeah. and I am the. I should ask Dan because Dan would know. <laughs> uh, I'm terrible at dates. It yeah. had to have been close to that time frame. So okay. again, you think doubling in size every couple of years. It, it would have been close to that. Hmm. The, the 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 picture that I have in my mind is we were being recruited. We were being recruited by a bunch of these mentoring groups that were in the area. Mm -hmm. Hellsberg puts on a, um, Hellsberg Diamonds, the founder is here in Kansas City. Um, hmm. And uh, they have a group called Hemp. Has nothing to do with uh, marijuana. It has <laughs> it's a Hellsberg Entrepreneurship Mentorship Program. It's ah, really, hemp. really well known. It's, okay. it's, it's well done too. But in order to qualify, you have to be past the seven figure mark. Um, mm. And we, we kept getting courted and they were like thinking about making a special ex exception for us because we were so involved in the community and we just, we were okay being small. Hmm. We didn't have to be past the seven-finger mm -hmm. mark. 
Well, then, so they, they created it. There was another group um, made through another entrepreneurship organization in town for folks that were sub seven figures to help them get past that mark. Mm-hmm. We were the guinea pigs of that group. And as we got brought into it, literally, we were already passing. We were just passing the number as we got brought into the mentorship ah. group. So it was kind of this weird, like, technically, we're past the mark that you, you're trying to help people get past. Mm-hmm. So we were just running the edge of it. But it was, I remember one of our employees at the time, he had actually had owned a business. And um, he said, well, you can never make less than seven figures again. Hmm. And that kind of shook me. I was like, oh, like you never want to go back. backwards. You yeah. never want to go yeah, down. And, um, but it was, it was definitely to get to that mark was, uh, was exciting. Hmm. We celebrated it. Um, but we also kind of said, you know what? We're still, we've still got a lot to learn. We still got a lot to grow. Um, so yeah, it would have been about that time. I just rem- I remember more the conditions of it than I remember the time, the exact mm-hmm. timing of it. Mm-hmm. So, and but I think the th- reason why it's so helpful to hear that is because especially for the new software dev agencies that are starting up, they yep. might get two, three, four years in and be like, oh my gosh, a million dollars still feels like so far away. But even in yeah. your story, right? Like you started freelancing in two thousand seven. It wasn't until probably two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. Yeah. That You're you talking guys about doors many years. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yep. Well, and I think the other thing to think about is you can you can live a really good life if you keep your team, your cost down. Mm-hmm. You keep your team small. Maybe you outsource some of your work. I mean, the solopreneur is a, bit, a big growth thing right now. Um, and you can do, you can live really good. I mean, if you were bringing in a half a million dollars or a quarter of a million dollars um, and kept your cost low or outsourced your cost, you have a good life. Mm-hmm. You have a better life than most of the people on the planet. That's right. And so, um, while the million, you know, people think about the word millions or you know, then billions, mm-hmm. it's it's good. And you know, Crema's gotten to the point where um, you know we were doing multiple, multiple, multiple millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and um, and that's fine. But that what that means is when you're at that size, tends to be that now you have an engine you have to keep feeding. That's right. Right. And so that's, that's, if that's the life you want, if that's the challenge you want to take on, then go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. You get to be surrounded by people that are like there for the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's not, I don't try to measure success based off of the financial number. Mm-hmm. I'm more trying to measure the success based off of kind of the satisfaction of the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but you know, that can be less money than the year before even. We could decide to go, you know what, I don't have to grow it to be more money next year. Mm-hmm. Maybe we stay flat or maybe we pull back a little bit and do more creative, interesting things mm-hmm. um, so that we can reset. And maybe that takes us to a new trajectory of growth that we didn't even expect. Yeah, that's really good. That is really, really good. So as you guys, as we're thinking towards the million dollar mark in particular, because I know that this is a, it can be a bit of a, a goal for a lot of people, a lot of yeah. goalposts well, for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Could you remember back to those days and and speak to like what were some of the primary obstacles in moving to that stage of growth? For us, it was probably deal size. Mm. Um, so I think the big thing was we just felt like we couldn't get over the the kind of that hump of saying, "Man, we're we're not getting jobs that are more than you know a hundred grand." Mm-hmm. Um, and yet software was becoming more expensive to do. We were realizing in order to do this well, we were going to need to be charging more either by an hourly rate or by deal size mm-hmm. or by project size. Um, we did our, our, our 
contracts, we started to change up the way that we shaped our contracts. So instead of billing on the hour or fixed bid, which we were doing fixed bid for a long time, we shifted to a, a weekly rate. And effectively, it was based off of an hourly rate, but we could resource plan a little bit better that a person's allocation might be 100% or 50% per week. Hmm. So you could have a person that could take on a little bit more work with multiple projects. And so you could stack things. You had a little more fluidity to stack things than you could when you were dealing with just the profit on the hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that, that shift for us uh, and the way that we set up our, our contracts uh, was really helpful. And then the other thing that we did, uh, you know, it really worked for the time. I'm not sure if it's still the right thing. I, mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, we're always testing that, but that we moved to basically having no deliverables in our contracts. Oh, wow. Yeah. Crazy. I know. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard sell. I'll just say it now. But what we, the reason we did that was we, we really were made it clear that if you want to work with an agency that is truly working in agile, that's truly working in an iterative approach. Mm-hmm then what we said on the piece of paper at the beginning is not what we're going to end up seeing at the Mm. end. Right. And so unless you want to manage change management and procurement wants to, you know, you know, sign off on those every two weeks, then we need to have something that's a lot more flexible. Mm -hmm. And what that, what I want you to prepare, prepare you for is here is your team. There are, is a separate document that's not legally binding. That is, that is like milestones and goals that we want to be aiming towards, Mm -hmm. but the more outcomes than they are deliverables. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think when we started to put that in place, then really sell to clients, Hey, let's have a very close collaborative relationship over the long term. Um, then you'll understand what your burn rate is. If you need to dial mm-hmm. down or dial up on that, you can do that. Yeah. And you think in burn rate, you don't think in check marks. Right. You know? And that shift for us allowed us to then go, Oh, we're getting longer term contracts. So mm-hmm. then I think about that time is when we went from having, you know, hundred thousand dollar projects to half a million dollar projects to having, you know, some of our biggest projects, then we started renewing at multi-year, multi-million dollar. Hmm. Um, And so I think the long-term nature of being able to say, oh, now we have something stable at the bottom. Mm -hmm. So we get these stable clients. We always usually had one or two big stable clients Mm -hmm. that we could fill in the small um, early stage projects around that. Hmm. Um, So it allowed us to learn how to stack projects more successfully Mm -hmm. to get to the point where, um, it wasn't just one at mm-hmm. a time mm-hmm. and that project is done. Now I got to find another project. Yeah. The project's done. Okay. It's the feast it allowed and famine. Us, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we still feel feast and famine. There's no, okay. I mean, that is the service world, but we were able to kind of go, okay, how can we stack this better? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think really that's when we went from being, okay, cool. This is a million dollars that we just passed to pretty easily getting into the, you know, two, three, four million. Wow. Um, because we could, we could, we could feel the how to sell the burn rate and stack that burn rate because then effectively all we were we were selling was teams Hmm. so rather than selling this big software build it Mm -hmm. was hey you know what we have a dedicated product team for you Mm -hmm. and i'm not doing one you know i'm not doing a staffing agency where i'm just doing one person at a time no no i'm training these people how to work like ninjas with Mm -hmm. each other um, and then they can go out and deploy into your environment and work, move really, really fast. That's so fascinating. Did you find that when you made a kind of uh, concerted uh, switch and focus on this kind of almost new way of, of framing your work, did you find that client satisfaction remained the same? It increased, it decreased. What did that do to client satisfaction? 
Yeah, I think it um, it shifted at first. So it uh, made sales a little harder until we knew how what the language was. Mm. Um, so sales, you know, was a little bit of an uphill battle, but we got better at it mm. with practice. When you got to the client satisfaction piece, yeah, clients were like awesome because what it forced us to do do was be extremely accountable to communication. Mm. So we had to include them on daily standups. Mm -hmm. We had to include them on sprint kickoffs. We had to include them on estimation processes. Mm -hmm. And those are things that a lot of agencies will just kind of keep like hidden away mm -hmm. because it's like the secret sauce. They don't want the client to see like how this is done and, and maybe we can fudge some numbers over here or something. And instead it was like, no, you need to come in here and hear us say that we think that feature or that functionality is a, is a 21, which if you've been in the world mm -hmm. of estimation, it's like a Fibonacci number. Right. It's a, it's a big impossible uh, lift. And they're like, well, I, hold on. I thought this was just moving the button over. Oh, you just wanted us to move the button over. Oh, oh yeah. That's just a two. Like hmm. it all of a sudden created clarity in mm. where you didn't have these back and forth of, oh, I thought you meant, and then mm. we did something else or with all everybody with the best of intentions. Yep. Right. But being able to kind of more clearly address issues faster mm. because you were forced to work collaboratively because that burn rate was at stake. Interesting. And, you know, I think that actually um, it, it, it feeds well into another question, which I'm going to get to in just a minute. I have like yeah, so many fine. questions. This is such a great, yeah. this is such a great conversation. It, hey, it's, it's your time. I want to make sure we stay within your time. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm game for it. I, um, okay. So I, be, before I get into this, because it is something that's very notable, I'm excited to ask you about, but before we get into that, I do have another question, which the, the, the background or the backdrop to this question really came from another conversation I had with a software dev agency founder. And I asked him like, what's the, what was the biggest? pain point when you first launched your shop and surprisingly he said not having back office admin support right because he was coming from being a consultant in a consulting agency yeah. and he just remembered that shift that feeling of like wow i don't have somebody there to kind of like take care of these administrative types of things and so i had that in the back of my mind when i wrote this question for you but i noticed when i look at crema like there's not necessarily a dedicated finance role on staff with you guys so right. can you talk to us about like what has been your secret sauce in you know the the higher level finance things like managing cash flows and setting budgets and project profitability and even down to the more granular and mundane things like payroll and bookkeeping and billing like what's your secret sauce to that yeah um it's actually kind of a, a division of responsibilities for us. Mm. So um, that, none of that is me. I'll say that mm. now. Yeah. Um, I do review it. And so I think that one of the things that um, I try to, I, I, it's actually a discipline for me because it doesn't come naturally is that I have to go, okay, team, sit me down and talk to me about where we're at. Mm. You know, sit me down and talk to me about where we're going, you know, like from a financial perspective or, or even maybe from shifts in, in uh, benefits or, um, you know, anything that's going to affect our our balance sheet. Mm. Um, so the, the, the team that makes up the kind of approach to that is um, Dan, obviously. So Dan's background in both operations and in finance and more, he wasn't trained formally in finance, but like his, he just loves that stuff. Mm. He loves a good spreadsheet. Mm. Mm. And that, that is not, that is not me, but I love that. I love him for that. Yeah. Um, but he also doesn't have that financial um, training. And so what we do is uh, we have a really good relationship with our CPA and mm. we, we, we call on, on a regular basis for questions around best practices mm. or ways to shift things. We are actually um, using a very, very, very part-time fractional CFO mm. um, that comes in and consults on certain, certain areas. Mm. 
um, but it's just, it's really more ad hoc right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, a person on, it's been on our team for gosh, six or seven years now. Um, she came in actually is kind of like an office manager, mm-hmm. um, but very quickly started to take over some of the administrative tasks for Dan specifically mm-hmm. around, Hey, you know what you, you're really good at just, um, seeing the details. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to bring you in and help you do some of the bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. And so the bookkeeping, you know, which we don't have a lot of, but like making sure things then, then she became kind of our HR professional. Like, so mm-hmm. she, she's oversees all of HR policy. She oversees all of and, and it's crazy because our the folks that we work with from our benefit standpoint or for even from our, our legal standpoint, they're like, y'all, she is she's awesome. Mm-hmm. Laura is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she she really helped us oversee everything from like running payroll mm-hmm. each each pay cycle or making sure that when we went to hybrid that we had employees in all these different states and that the tax mm-hmm. uh, taxes were set up properly for each of those states. Mm-hmm. Um, she's done a good job of kind of managing all that. So that's mm-hmm. that's Laura. And then um, the combination of really Laura, Dan, and then our um, our directors and VPs. So this was something that was a little bit different. We, um, about five years ago, gosh, that number has gotten bigger. Probably six years ago. Yeah. Um, time goes by. We were told by a mentor, if you want your company to be successful, you need to replace yourself. Mm. We are like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. It's like, this. It, the, the company is Dan and I. Mm-hmm. Like, no, 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 no. People are hiring George and Dan and you happen to have this company called Crema, you need to flip that on its head to mm-hmm. say, people are hiring Crema, and it happens to be owned by these guys named mm-hmm. George and Dan. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what does that look like? Obviously, on, from a client services standpoint, I mean, I had to replace me being on every project. Mm-hmm. So that that took a long time, but we got that done. From a Dan perspective, it was him bringing in someone to help with payroll, with operations, with uh, leadership oversight, with one-on-ones for everybody, those types mm-hmm. of things. And so we ended up putting a, um, what we refer to as XLT or executive leadership team, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is our VPs in place. So that oversees all of client delivery, all of sales, all of long-term strategy, and then an operations VP. Mm-hmm. So this, those, those kind of quadrants really helped us to then go, okay, you also have purview into money. Mm-hmm. Now you can see everything. That's you get to so see good. everybody's salaries. You get mm-hmm. to see, um, you know, where everything's at which meant that we started to create better structures for pay bans. Mm-hmm. We started to create better leadership op- or growth opportunities for our employees. We started to better understand, here's where we make profit margins on the hour or on the week or on the project. Mm-hmm. How do you measure that? How does every project know what that's going on? So they started to see it. So it was a, it was diverting that so there was a shared knowledge mm-hmm. instead of it all being in one person's head, which and it, it was Dan originally. Right. right. That was really, really successful, albeit... Um, took some time, took about mm-hmm. two years before it really started to um, operate well. And now we have the directors, which for context includes both our HR side of things, um, but also our all of our what we call craft directors. That's each of our main crafts, which is product management, design, development, and testing. Mm-hmm. Those directors started to get more purview into those things as well. So they could understand even in their craft, how well are each of their craft people helping to support that overall number. Hmm. Um, and then, of course, they knew what people roughly were making. Um, they didn't know people above them, but they knew kind of people underneath them. Hmm. Um, and then, again, they knew the pay bands because we wanted to make that fair and equitable across uh, what the industry standards were. Um, so, yeah, we started to share the knowledge is really the way it played out. So we didn't have a, a one person 
Um, but Dan was definitely still the leader of that kind of orchestrating it. Mm. But then that shared knowledge really got um, brought out to a few others. And then we can, cons- we do consult with others just to say, are we missing something? Mm-hmm. You know, is there's ignorance is bliss until you're ignorant. And then, <laughs> like, you know, um, and so we do look for best practices just to see if there's, um, you know, we might go through a hard season where we go, Ooh, we need to be thinking carefully about what decisions we make right now. You know. And I'm so glad that you said, like, I feel like all of these are are perfect examples of like how to run it well. I mean, I mean, the, even the fact that you guys have grown to where you have, I think, is evidence of this. But a couple of things that I heard you say is like, number one, having somebody like a Dan to be yeah. part owner is so crucial. Like, you have to have somebody who can own that part of the of that you know part of the business. And yeah. like, even though eventually you guys got to the point where things were disseminated there's still the one person who's primarily accountable, right? Yeah. And yeah. then and then to your point, it's like, okay, even though Dan has a proclivity towards this, may not have like the training uh, per se, the background and the training for that, you then bring in trusted advisors. You've got your CPA that you guys call on regularly. You've got this yeah. fractional CFO that's over here, which for everybody who's listening, a CPA and a fractional CFO, not necessarily the same person. That's right, that's right. And it can actually be really helpful to have that interplay because they have a slightly different perspective. Both yeah. of them do. Um, and then you guys just really lucked out with Laura is her name, the office yeah, manager. She's incredible. Yeah. yeah. She's, uh, and yeah, I mean, having something like that, like a kind of a, a catch all for all these kind of administrative type of functions for the business. Like, yeah, this was, this is a, a very wise move on your guys's part. So, and, and remember it was over the course of six years. Sure. So like, this isn't something that happened <laughs> overnight either. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was something that took a transitionary time and, mm-hmm. and, it doesn't mean that it's perfect. There are times that we have to kind of step in and go, oh, we need to rethink this. We need to reapproach this. And what I, what I, the last thing I'll say, and you said that having a person or kind of a right-hand person, mm-hmm. if you're really, if the audience that you're speaking to is entrepreneurs and, and founders, having a person right next to you that is financially minded in some way is really, really powerful because again, I'm not that person. Mm-hmm. And what has been awesome to have Dan in my life is when you own a business, the business and personal overlaps a lot too, mm. right? So he does a really good job thinking about service-based businesses. Um, you're, you do have the potential of an exit one day. Mm. There is there is that potential. But really more of the business from a founder's perspective is saying, how do you get the money out of the business so you can invest it in other places that it'll grow? Mm. And so one of the things that we've done without taking advantage of the business because most of the time we're kind of keeping most of the money in the business to make sure it's healthy and growing well. Mm-hmm. But when it makes sense, we use the vehicles that can be used to to make sure that we're setting up what is successful for Dan and I's retirement one day, mm-hmm. right? And so um, that's really nice to have somebody that's thinking creatively about how to do those early on because you might just go, no, 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 all, all that needs to go back into the business because one day we'll sell this thing and it'll, mm-hmm. it'll be what we retire on. Mm-hmm. And especially in services, at least that's it's less of a um, uh, less of a thing to bank on. Yep. Instead, to go, I'm going to just mindfully and responsibly and, and integrally um, take the what my draws as an owner at the right times. Some some years, multiple years, you go, I ain't taking anything out because mm-hmm. we just got to make it through these years, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and other times, you go, okay, cool, we're going to use this vehicle mm-hmm. um, as a as a responsible way to do that to to take care of um, Dan and I's asset. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it's nice to have something because I would have never thought of any of those mm-hmm. things. 
Yeah. Um, and, and doing it integrally is a big, big piece that we really try to do well. That's so great. Yeah. Usually I'm talking with guys and the, the primary thing, because I'm usually talking with more like very engineering focused guys, like very technical guys. So they would probably feel more comfortable in that space. And so usually the the co-founder that they need is a sales and marketing guy, you know, somebody yeah. who can okay. who can really think that way. It sounds like that's a skill set you just have, you've developed and you are kind of more naturally gifted in. Yeah. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I guess. Oh man, that's, <laughs> that's an identity crisis right there. Like, man, I wanted, I wanted to, I want, you know, going back to my middle school self, I wanted to be the creative that was surrounded by creatives. Hmm. And what I grew up to be was a salesperson. Hmm. <laughs> like, and, and it is, it's okay. That's what, it's what, it's what the season calls for me to be. Hmm. Um, I think a couple of years ago, um, actually I had the freedom and, and Nate, our VP of sales, he's awesome. Um, but a lot of the net new leads and relationships come through me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, we, we are still shaping how can that, how can I replace myself in that as well? So I can step away from, um, not from doing it, but mm -hmm. from it being uh, crucial that I am the person Hinging doing it on you. Right, right, right. And if we can get to the place where that's not the case, then I think I will have space. And I've had seasons where I've had space to, to dream about what's next for Crema or dream about what, what else we could be doing or what else we could be shaping. Hmm. Um, a couple of years ago, I had a season for about nine months where I was able to do that. It was awesome. Hmm. Oh my gosh, it was amazing. Stepped back into it over the last couple of years, but that's, that's part of the game. Hmm. Oh, man. Well, I got to tell you, George, I wish we had like hours and hours because I still have so many more questions. I mean, you know, I sent some questions over and we haven't yeah, even gotten yeah. to them yet. I know. But I know we're, we're just about coming up on time and I want to make sure to give you some space to share some words of advice. This is something that I love to do on my podcasts is to just like give you an open platform to just speak to the younger version of yourself. So if you would please, just for a minute, um, I want you to envision somebody who is either currently in corporate America, they're a really mm. talented software, de de uh, either UX designer or even a software engineer, yep. and they're like itching to get out, start a business on their own, or maybe you're speaking to somebody who is the first or second year out starting their software dev agency. Talk, talk to that person, give them some words of wisdom from 15, 16 year crema owner, uh, just to kind of encourage and spur them on in their journey. Yeah. I mean, number one thing is just be patient. Um, you, again, the, we can talk about the success of crema being a like, wow, I can't believe you, you're that it's like, yeah, I'm that 15 years later, mm. right? I am, I am now an older man than I was when I first started this thing, which is a weird thing. Uh, so I think patience is the biggest thing. I, I wrote a, a blog post years ago that I, I come back to mentally, I come back to on a regular basis. And there's kind of two principles or two ideas that I like to think about. And that is, are you eating and are you sleeping? Hmm. And, and what I mean by that is, if you want to step out and start a business, there's really two goals for you as a person, family, et cetera, which is, can you afford to eat and can you afford to sleep? And you can afford to eat when you're making money right? When you have enough profit that you can take some money out of the business to pay yourself to actually put a meal on the table. And until then you eat less or you eat different things, right? So, uh, I, I knew founders that ate just jars of peanut butter for a while. And that was the patience they had. Mm. Um, or they decided, you know what, I'm going to eat from my day job and I'm going to eat less or sleep less by 
working in the evenings on this side side gig until it turns into something that I can take off on. So one is eating. So that's you're making enough money that you can decide to leave your day job or that you can decide to feed yourself and your family and your loved ones. Hmm. The second one is, are you sleeping? And the sleeping one is obviously lots of scientists say sleeping, sleeping is really great. And that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is that if you're sleeping, you've just started to build enough structures, automation, teams, people, um, things in place that you're not doing everything. Hmm. Now, the solopreneur life is really, really popular right now for like, oh, go be your own you know, entrepreneur and you can do it all yourself, et cetera. That's only possible if you create automation, if you create ways to replace yourself, going back to this thing we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And so I think replacing yourself through teams, through tools, through outsourcing, mm-hmm. through et cetera, um, is a great way to go ahead and allow yourself to have the freedom to say, I can go to sleep at night. I don't have to stay up and work 24 hours a day. So at a certain point, I'll be honest, I was only working 35 hours a week hmm. as a founder. People were like, how is that even possible? I've never thought about, you know, you, you, you as a founder, you have to work 100 and 150 hours a week. Mm-mm. It's just not true. Mm-hmm. But you do have to work 100 hour a week until you can get to the point where you can automate yourself out of replacing yourself. Mm. So I think just the patience to get there, get the, the patience to be able to eat and to sleep mm. um, is, is um, something that is, it feels impossible in the moment, but if you just make the small disciplines over time, mm. it goes a long, long way. Last thing I'll say is don't worry about strategy. Don't worry about business mm. plan. Put them together, use them. They're fine. They're great assets. They're great um, artifacts, mm. but, um, I think lead with principles. Mm -hmm. If you can build principles around the way you think, what's great is that principles can be adopted. Mm -hmm. They can be spread. They can be understood a lot easier than um, a perfectly executed plan. Mm -hmm. So I love, I love, love, love sharing principles around the office. And um, so one of them is, are we eating and are we sleeping? Mm -hmm. So I love that. I love that, man. And there is, like I said, Still so much more that I wish we could have talked about. One of the things that I was going to ask you about is the five-star clutch reviews that you guys have. And I'm like, if you guys if you guys want to see a company that's doing it right, you all you have to do is just look to Crema. Uh, clearly, the advice about be principles-led, even before strategy-led, I think is so critical. And I'm glad that you touched on that. That and patience. So that's a that's a wonderful word to kind of leave our listeners with. Um, now, George, people have been listening. You know, maybe there's some questions that have come up as they've listened to this podcast. Um, where could people go to follow you? Maybe connect with you. Uh, where are you at socials wise? Yeah, I mean, if you're looking for Cremon, definitely check out Cremon.us is our website, but also um, Crema or Crema Lab. Um, are there are two handles that you can look for us pretty much on all the places. Um, if you're looking for me, I'm on LinkedIn, hit me up George Brooks. Um, or if you're following me on, uh, the, the Twitters or the threads now, which is the hot new thing. Um, it's concepts guy. So concepts guy is kind of the, the classic handle for me, just trying to help people dream up their next concepts. So I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, George, so much for being here on the show today. Your insights on your journey with Crema have been so wildly insightful. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. And thank you all to our listeners. 
If you found value in our podcast today, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our future episodes for our future episodes. Also, don't forget to leave us a review because that helps uh, other people to find us and hear inspiring stories like the one you heard today. If you are the founder of a software development agency or you know somebody who is, and you'd like to share something exciting that you're up to with our audience, drop me a line at tony at equip.com. That's A-C-C-Q-U-I-P dot com. Thanks all for listening.